Welcome to the Cinema Show, where we bring you movie news, reviews, and insights right here on our podcast. I'm Dylan Martin. Here with me is Jackson. Hey guys, what's <laughs> up? Do how, something how to doing? pick you up, man. We got some movie news to talk about. Movie news! There it is. <laughs> and a review. Lovely Lori, how are you? Well, hello, gentlemen. I'm doing great. You know, I'm feeling fast. I'm feeling furious. This fine Saturday. I'm feeling a little bit uh, Tokyo Drift. Mmm, that's a good one. I just thought of a better one. Do you catch my Tokyo Drift? No, I got a shot for that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) All right, we have a lot to talk about. We have a movie review for you at the end here we we're going to talk about a certain streaming service and their inquisition as well as a certain trailer which i'm sure you know by what we've been talking about recently which movie we're going to talk about and that certain trailer but first some breaking news lucasfilm has confirmed harrison ford will return as one of cinema's most iconic characters indiana jones joining alongside ford is emmy award-winning actress phoebe waller bridge Also coming back is the franchise's original composer, John Williams. With James Mangold taking over the directing reins, the fifth film installment of Indiana Jones will premiere on July 28th, 2022. And right now, Deadline just reported that Mads Mikkelsen has joined the cast as well. I like that they have to keep confirming that Harrison Ford's coming back like every year. It's a perennial (laughs) announcement. This movie's coming out, guys. Oh, but gosh, Indiana Jones, such a legacy. But can I just say, I don't know, are we going to start reviewing the trailer now? Are reviewing like, because I saw like s- little clips. I don't know if it's a real trailer or if it's like a fan trailer. What are those trailers I think that are I it's a fan out? trailer. It might be a fan trailer. These fan trailers have got me spinning right now. And I hope that this is true. I know they, you know, there's so much out there. We don't know much about the film now. But in the fan trailer, everybody, the fans are really wanting to see a glimpse of, I think we all know, the Ark of the Covenant. They want to see us go back to the original and they want to see the Ark of the Covenant come out of the box again. Melt off some more faces. Let's go full circle, people. Let's go full circle. So you are excited for this, Lori. Okay. I'm scared for this. I'm nervous. <laughs> I'm nervously excited because at this point, I, you know, Crystal Skull, oh gosh, Crystal Skull. It, it, it was so bad. But I, I love Indiana Jones for what it is. I'm a fan, so it's hard to lose me. So please, when it comes to the movies, like, uh, you know, he was what made me want to study archaeology which you know i did one semester and i was like oh wait no that's good i just like the movies um <laughs> but yes i mean he made it cool to be smart and uh i i don't know it just goes back i remember i had that brown whip when i was a kid and me and my brother would fight over it with the fedora you know and then like oh i don't like snakes <laughs> you know and <laughs> and you know it was just something always reenacting uh, so many of my memories come from his from the indiana jones movies and it was there was always something you could take from it the original one we really delved into the ark of the covenant then you come back with um the second one which is the temple of doom where you really started to get into uh you know the indian culture and a lot of the stuff that was going on at the time with you know i know it was all fictional but at the same time you know who can forget the big scene where they slice open the snake and the baby snakes come out you know that that 
dinner scene is one of the most famous scenes in the world. I don't know. I just always felt like when you watch an Indiana Jones movie, it took you to another place, you know, and then, you know, you come into the the last crusade where you have the Holy Grail and Sean Connery. Forget about it. Yeah, like, are, are we kidding ourselves? As much as we're, like, down on this movie, like, oh, Indiana Jones 5, they're digging up Harrison Ford, we're still going to watch it. It's it's another Indiana Jones movie. Are, are you yes. kidding? Well, I, I didn't watch the fourth one until it came out, I think, on HBO at the time. So I kind of, I kind of like, didn't really jump on the hype train with that Shia LaBeouf movie. And I'm kind of scared for another reason. I mean, Harrison Ford almost died in real life on that plane. Do we not forget yeah. that? He yeah, that escaped like death. And then, ago even. And John Williams, I mean, I feel like he's going to do what he did in Rise of Skywalker and just say, hey, you already got all my greatest hits. Just, you know, remix it a little and call it a day. <laughs> I mean, hey, John Williams is still getting paid to this day. The, the man's a legend alongside Harrison Ford. I think the only breath of life for me is Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Do you think she's going to be handed down the torch? Is she going to wear the fedora? A female Indiana Jones, maybe? I mean, I feel like they kind of already did the whole passing of the torch, or they tried to with Shia LaBeouf. Everyone yeah. tries to forget the fourth movie, though, so it works out. I thought he played a really good son to Harrison Ford, and I thought mm-hmm. he would, he actually did a really good job. It's just the movie itself just ended up be- being such yeah, a he disaster. Was in, like, a perfect place in his life to take up that mantle. Like All the signs are pointing to it, and it ultimately didn't happen. I know there was rumors circulating that Chris Pratt was going to be the obvious choice for being the next Indiana Jones, which, I mean, I think at this point, as a whole with the franchise, I'm kind of, I'm not really interested in it. I mean, I love the original three movies. I mean, who doesn't? That's a classic trilogy right there. And I feel like the less you touch on it, the better. But I feel like, again, with the purchase of Lucasfilm as a whole, they already did it with Star Wars, and it's a no-brainer that they're going to try to bring back that magic with Indiana Jones. I'm not surprised about this, and I'm not really excited for it, if I'm being honest. I love Indiana Jones. I mean, who doesn't? But yeah, it's not for me. What decade was Crystal Skull taking place in? That was, was that 60s? Uh, no, it was, no, it was earlier. Uh, well, 50s? Yeah, it was probably 50s. Yeah, it was 50s. Oh my goodness, you're right because of when his son came along. Yeah, yeah it had there to be was like 20 a years later. Gap there, 20 years later. Wow, Are we yeah, going to be so another 20 right. years later? It's been almost 20 years since Crystal Skull came out or no, 10 years, right? You always have to remember a lot of the things that they the themes that they end up going with have to do with certain archaeological mythology. And so mm-hmm. it's really interesting to see which tack they're going to take on this one because they always have an angle. You know, the first one was the Ark of the Covenant. The second one, of course, was the the uh, rocks, you know, in India. Then the third one was the Holy Grail. The fourth one was the Crystal Skulls. So you have to see the timeline about, okay, how many years after this is this movie going to take place as it did from Crystal Skull? What was impending at the time and what was the big archaeological thing at the time because i feel like there's always something you know we even had a whole show on sci-fi that was centered around warehouse 13 where we secretly know that the government is keeping all of these things from us you know (laughs) 
all of these things like the Ark of the Covenant, like the Holy Grail, you know, like, you know, pieces uh, of alien life form, you know, uh, it's this whole theory out there. And it's something that's very big on the archaeology, you know, blogs and mythology and anything that you look up out there. So it's going to be interesting to see what tack they take with this one. It's been 14 years when this will release real quick. When this releases, it will be 14 years since Crystal Skull came out. So they could wow. be in the 70s or something. 80s. Even the yeah. 80s. Ooh, an 80s Indiana Jones movie? An okay. 80s mm-hmm. Indiana Jones. Ooh. Also, stepping down as director is Steven Spielberg, and this time we're getting James Mangold. For the first time in the series. Yeah, so I'm I'm wondering if we're going to get something a little bit more grittier, a little bit something more... I'm, I'm not sure, maybe something a little bit less lighthearted compared to maybe... The last one, even I would say Temple of Doom was a little more lighthearted <laughs> compared to the first one. So I'm hoping they kind of go back to the roots because I feel like Last Crusade kind of went back a little bit, toned it down with the kid friendly stuff. And when you bring that up, Lori, about the Ark of the Covenant, I would have I, I actually do like that idea. If they do bring that back, it also tells me that they're going to go back to that same tone from that first mm-hmm. one. So I'm I'm curious now to see what James Mangold does do. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Matt Mickelson. It's not confirmed what his character is, but I'm pretty sure he's the villain of the movie. I think it would be great if he were a hero. If he were like a secret hero or like a twist hero or something like that, that'd be great. Everyone expects him to be the villain. Yeah, maybe. But I mean, come on. Is Phoebe Waller-Bridge going to be the villain? But didn't they already do that with Crystal Skull, that uh, Kate Blanchett? Yeah. That's well, right. also with The Last Crusade, because his love interest turned out to be the worst Nazi. <laughs> if I had she a dime. stabbed him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And there's the other thing. Are we going to continue the whole, you know, Nazi theme? Because it's very big in the Indiana Jones. There you go. And it's the new wit factor. We hate Nazis. Here on the cinema show, we all hate Nazis. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah. Disclaimer. Just want to put that out there for anti-Nazi. I would love to see Indiana Jones die in this movie. Uh. And since it's James Mangold, I'm hoping he brings back that little Wolverine or no, Logan, that Logan flavor. And I want to see Harrison Ford. I mean, Indiana Jones, not Harrison Ford, the man, die slow death, you know, by a big old snake. But I think he feared himself. I would love that. It's like he always knew it was going to be snakes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like a big Why old python. Snakes? Or what was that movie with Jennifer Lopez and Ice Cube? Anaconda. 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 That's what I want. A big old anaconda. By the way, the anaconda looked freaking awesome in that movie. Oh, bring yeah. the anaconda back from that movie. <laughs> Let's do a crossover. Crossover anaconda. Bring in Jennifer Lopez. Why not? And Ice Cube. And be like, hey, that's the snake we're looking for all these years. Kills Harrison Ford. That's I mean, got it Indiana Jones. I don't want Harrison Ford to die, even okay. though I kind of think he himself. <laughs> That's exactly. 
I was about to like touch on that. I'm like, guys, at this point, I'm starting to feel just as bad for Harrison Ford as I kind of do like for my mom who's elderly and needs a lot more help like getting taken mm-hmm. care of nowadays. It's kind of like I try to lift her spirits by giving her a lot of like little jokes to make her laugh. But I have to be careful about how many like, you know, life or death jokes I give her because sometimes she just has this sad look on her face. And I feel like every time they pitch, you know, one of his iconic roles to him, hey, you know, Harrison Ford and, you know, Han Solo gonna die. And then like to hit him up again and like Indiana Jones gonna die. And he's like sitting there like, oh, I guess they're just trying to tell. I guess I just can't get a hint. <laughs> you know, it's, it's I think it's time for me to die. <laughs> Knowing him, he's probably like, oh, thank God you're killing them off. I don't have to do any more of these stupid movies. <laughs> The happiest I've ever seen Harrison Ford talk about a Star Wars movie is when he gets to talk about him finally getting to kill off his own character. So yeah. I'm pretty sure when Disney called him up, like, hey, Harrison Ford, he's like, ah, yeah. <laughs> you guys again. I already did Call of the Wild. What do you want? <laughs> Look, Harrison Ford, we know you don't like dogs. Hear me out. It's a CGI dog. All right. As long I as hate don't dogs. Be around that thing. <laughs> I, I I sneeze a lot. <laughs> good on Harrison Ford and good on John Williams. Little known fact: they actually had Callista Flockhart dress up in a dog suit and kind of you know later on they put the dog CGI dog in her place, but she was actually the one doing all the acting beside uh, Harrison Ford. So and he was really disappointed that they replaced her. With the CGI dog. <laughs> really, they really did. They really did. She did a wonderful job. Why is there a dog in the movie? <laughs> <laughs> he actually just like pats her and calls her old girl all the time, you know? So it's kind of... Are, are you sure Harrison Ford would call a woman in a dog suit old girl? <laughs> oh, oh, no, no, no. I was actually, yeah. you know... <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't say what he actually called her, but okay. it was a term yeah. of endearment to him. The investigation's still mm. going on. <laughs> yes, yes. As with, with every woman's case out there, all of its <laughs> pending investigations. <laughs> a little bit of foreshadowing. <laughs> Nobody gets convicted of any- anything, do they, boys? <laughs> Slow your roll, Lori. We're, we'll get there. Oh, we'll get to that conversation. <laughs> Don't you worry. <laughs> all right, let's move on. To Netflix, the kiss of death, I like to call it, of theaters. Um, (laughs) No, who am I kidding? I have a Netflix subscription, but (laughs) IGN claims that Legendary Entertainment and uh, Kong Skull Island director Jordan Vock Roberts are teaming up to work on a live-action Gundam movie that will stream exclusively on Netflix. The movie is an adaptation of the most popular, one of the most popular animes. Mobile Suit Gundam, the Japanese animated series which debuted in 1979, was just part about humans piloting bigger-than-life mobile suits, but more about political dissonance and colonialism as the armies of the space colonies wage war of independence against those still on Earth. Gundam will be streaming worldwide on Netflix, with the exception of China, Legendary Entertainment will be distributing the robotic blockbuster theatrically in the Middle Kingdom. That's not fair. Interesting. Yeah, that that was my biggest takeaway from this. So can I sing the song and then if you want to choose to use it later, you can edit it in wherever you will. But are you ready for the song song that I made up? 
The Netflix Go. Inquisition. Let's begin. The Netflix Inquisition. It's Gundam. The Netflix Inquisition. We bet you. We wish you'd go away. But Netflix is here and it's here to stay. That was really good. I'm keeping that actually. Recoining it. Uh, <laughs> You'll get royalties. It's like uh, Brian Cranston whenever he Yay! whistles in Malcolm in the Middle. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, sorry. It was just off the cuff. Anytime <laughs> we talk about anything anime from the 80s or 90s, just assume I've watched it, but only assume I watched it in Spanish. And keep in mind, I don't know any Spanish, so I don't know what the hell is going on in any of these shows. But I just know Gundam is a big old robot and he looks freaking awesome. I'm excited about this movie. I'm just disappointed that it's going to Netflix only because. I'm on that Godzilla versus Kong high, so I want to see a big old mech in the theater, and I'm really disappointed we won't be able to watch it in the theater because it'll be streaming only on Netflix. Yeah, that that's the big takeaway for me here as well. Like, it's cool that we're going to be getting a Gundam movie. Like that, I think. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's the first time that's happening. But it's going to be on Netflix, so people can watch it on their phone. The, just how it was intended to be watched. <laughs> the only thing that was intended to be watched on our phones was porn. <laughs> <laughs> Does anyone else have a history with Gundam? Uh, no. Uh, I watched it when I was a kid. I think I watched like the newest at the time, which was like mid-2000s. The one that was on Cartoon Network. That's all I know. And even then, I don't remember much. So I, I just love the way... Gu- uh, that Gundam looks. Yeah, he's iconic. I mean, you see yeah. him and you know where he is. I mean, who he is and where he or where it is from. Actually, they had him cameo in Ready Player One. I thought that was That's one of right. the most exciting parts of that movie. That along was with great. Seeing Mechagodzilla and Iron Giant. But yeah, seeing a Gundam in the movie, it was great. And I'm sure everyone, the first thing they thought was, how have we not gotten a Gundam movie yet? And we're getting it. But again, streaming. So... But yeah, Netflix, they're making some big moves here, especially it's in with good the, hands. Yeah, with a blockbuster like this. But also, we have some other moves Netflix is making. Now, according to Variety, Sony has officially found their streaming home. Now, starting in 2022, all movies under the Culver City lot, including Columbia Pictures, Sony Pictures Classics, Screen Gems, and TriStar Pictures. They will be streaming exclusively on Netflix after their theatrical and home entertainment release. On top of the $1 billion streaming distribution deal, Sony will still have a standard pay scale on each individual movie's basis. So not only on top of the $1 billion Sony is getting, they will also be making money based off the performance of each individual movie. And on top of that, Netflix does have the right to refuse any Sony-produced film that was intended for streaming. So that means if Sony had made this movie and they weren't going to put it on in theaters, they wanted it to go to streaming, which is now Netflix, they have the right to say no. But that does give Sony the option to kind of go somewhere else, to HBO Max or Apple TV, and sell it there. But still, really good deal. Now, this promises to see not only 
current franchises like Spider-Man and Jumanji on the streaming service, but the option to expand them exclusively with future installments. And what a big deal uh, this was. This is a win-win for both. Holy crap. Yeah, and it's perfect because we've been kind of questioning Sony, you know, like where's their streaming service? Uh, Warner Brothers did it with HBO Max. Disney did it with Disney Plus. And Sony kind of, they kind of went another route. They kind of went around saying, all right, who's the highest bidder? Who wants our rights? And I thought it was perfect too. And then Netflix, I don't want to say they're desperate right now, but they're kind of feeling the effects of HBO Max and Disney Plus at the moment. Definitely. So right now they're they're looking around and seeing what's available. And I thought it was a, it's a good match for Sony and for Netflix. A big middle finger to Disney though <laughs> with Spider-Man. And these streaming services are going uh, I'm sorry that with the newly released Paramount Plus, have y'all gotten on this train yet? No, no. not yet. It's I mean my, I did. My wallet's suffering. Are you going to watch <laughs> Clarice? The spin-off show that nobody's asking for? That nobody's asking for. I've uh, gotten on the Paramount Plus bandwagon, but primarily because of what uh, MTV is doing with it. MTV is putting out all of its old content. And I don't know if y'all saw on Paramount Plus, but the very original cast of The Real World got together. The very first one, New York, one of the most controversial ones. And they got back together and they lived in a house together. One of the cast members actually couldn't even go in because he tested positive for COVID. This was at the height of the pandemic. Oh, God. And they redid. They had them live together again. But, you know, the old days, it was like for three months. And this one, I think it was for one. But we are like, I'm like three episodes into that. And I like, I'm obsessed. Because a lot of the same tensions, especially, you know, you go back uh, to the reason some of these roommates had some of their business, biggest disagreements. One of them was an aspiring model. One of them was an aspiring dancer at the time. One of them was a two of them were aspiring musicians. Uh, one of them went on to become best friends with Tupac Shakur after the original release of the first real world. And uh, he wrote a lot of uh, the work like he was hit Tupac Shakur's ghostwriter. Uh, and that's because he was one of the ones who got one some of the most heat from the original real world uh, because he was labeled as the angry black man at the time, you know, and uh, he actually Tupac uh, Shakur reached out to him because he loved him so much from MTV. But this is before Tupac hit big and he hired this guy on as his personal ghostwriter writer and then you come back now and then living together and they get into some of the exact same arguments that they did all those years ago wow which is baffling yeah i didn't realize they made them live together again i thought it was one of those reunion episodes like just a one-time thing kind of like fresh prince of bel-air what they did but wow they made them live together again <laughs> that's <laughs> i would not agree to that it's so funny because like the first two or three days, they're like, oh, my gosh, look at how grown up we are now. Look at how much the world has changed. We're such better people by like the fourth and fifth day, complete regression. And you're oh just gosh. like, whoa. And it's like, I knew you were still racist. And we're like, whoa. <laughs> whoa. Uh, hey, you're doing awesome. you're doing pretty good at advertising this Paramount Plus. <laughs> I'm telling you. Yeah. I'm a, better yeah. than they're, better than they're doing. <laughs> Since I've gotten it, I have watched it more than any other streaming service. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Right now, yeah. we're still in the middle of the streaming wars. 
Yeah. For Netflix to be able to make a $1 billion deal like this. Oh, they're just getting started. Yeah, we're not even getting into the next thing yet, too. But just here alone. Also, this is just going to elongate Sony and their plans for Spider-Man. I mean, this could be easily their home for all the future projects, too. Because Sony could just say, you know what? We're going to stick this out until as far as we can. And now we can. Now with the financial backing of Netflix. And Netflix gets first dibs on any movie they want. And if they don't want it, then they're like, okay, you can go give that one to anybody. And they could be given one that's like a lesser movie than they would allow on Netflix, you know? Mm -hmm. They get whatever they want. And this is strictly just movies. These are only just film distribution rights. And I'm glad you brought up the whole television part about it, Lori, because Sony, they they do have their own television division, and that's where they kind of go everywhere. I saw on their catalog that they have one for Hulu exclusive and Amazon Prime exclusive series. So they're just everywhere. They're trying to just cover all their bases. And I think that's a good move on Sony's end. I think if they would have made their own streaming service, I don't think they have enough legs to support it. Like they don't have enough of that IP catalog like others do. So I think right now it's great that they went the route of the highest bidder because they know they have enough there to sell. And clearly they do with a billion dollars. That to me is crazy. Spider-Man alone. No, absolutely. So yeah, again, I'm just curious to see how this is all going to work out, especially with Netflix, because I feel like they're they're spending a lot of money and I feel like the intake isn't rewarding that. Got to spend money to make money. But I mean, I feel like majority of people are already on Netflix. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't yeah, see them on Netflix already. Then what are you doing? Yeah. How much more subscribers can they get at this point? If anything, it's the other streaming services that are trying to get that same demographic. You know, like, oh, they're they're buying into Netflix. OK, well, th- then they could buy into whatever we're selling. Paramount Plus, Disney Plus, etc. Are y'all having the same problem that I'm having? I'm sorry, but the more and more I get onto Netflix, the more I don't land on something to watch there. Yeah, you're overwhelmed by choice. They throw so much at you. It's like, hey, watch this. You can watch anything you want. And I think that was a strong suit of Blockbuster because you were forced to get whatever was there. You didn't have unlimited options. I find myself watching the things I want. I've uh, already having watched the things I wanted to watch. But you don't think you'll run into that problem with Paramount Plus? Oh, absolutely. And that's when, you know, that's when uh, I I will tell you, I am totally buying a stairway to heaven. All that glitters is gold for me, you know, (laughs) to put the exact same price on it. Just say half off sale and I will buy that shoe. I am definitely I'm a great representation of like. Uh, okay, so this is the norm and this is how we can keep their attention, you know, but I will say, I don't know. I don't know. I, I've lost interest in a lot of these others. So I, I think there's great potential because I wonder how many other people are out there feeling that exact same way. And, you know, a new streaming service comes up and they're just like, oh, we'll give you this. They're giving you this, but we're going to give you all of this. And I'll be honest with Disney Plus, I never get on unless it's a new episode of either their current Star Wars or Disney Plus, uh, Marvel Studios, MCU shows. Like, I just watched Falcon and Winter Soldier, and I have not gone back onto Disney Plus. There's yeah, nothing exactly. there. 
it's nice to be able to have that whole Disney catalog. It's nice, but that's not my main drive. My main drive for Disney Plus is their new content, and they know that. That's why they're putting so much money into new content for Disney Plus. Yeah, like all other things, too. Yeah, I think with now that Paramount Plus is launched and this Sony deal with Netflix, I think the streaming wars are finally, everyone's on equal footing. Everyone has a streaming service now. It's just what's going to happen from here. Everything before this point has just been built up. So now we're going to see what truly happens with Hollywood throwing everything at streaming services. Mm-hmm. It's just the beginning of everything. And glad to see Netflix was one of the, if not the first to do it and still making huge moves to stay alive. Mm-hmm. Good on their end. So let's talk about one of their last ones here. Deadline reports Netflix has closed on a deal to make two sequels to the Who Done It Knives Out franchise, which Ryan Johnson will direct with Daniel Craig reprising his leading role. Sources say the deal will be worth $469 million, making it one of the biggest streamer movie deals in history. Conditions in the expensive deal include Ryan Johnson having complete creative control and not having to take any notes from Netflix. Also, Daniel Craig is contractually obligated to star in both sequels and both installments each must have at least the same budget of the original film. The first sequel will begin shooting this summer in Greece, meaning casting will immediately start. So I did some numbers. I went ahead and... I gave him an extra million. I rounded it up to 470 million. Now, also, I didn't include this, but sources are saying that from that deal, $100 million went to three men. It was Ryan Johnson, Daniel Craig, and the producer, which I didn't get the name of. So you had to take off $300 million right there, right off the bat. And you're still left with $170 million. Now, the film budget had to be at least the same as the original. So, the original budget for the first movie was $40 million. Now, multiply that by two for each movies, that's $80 million. Take that away from the $170 million, and you're still left over with $90 million. So, that's, that's $90 double. million dollars going directly to, I'm assuming, Ryan Johnson's production company. Which is crazy, because... The first Knives Out movie, the budget was forty million, and a lot of that, mo- uh, a lot of that went to paying Daniel Craig to be in the movie. Because keep in mind, he's coming off of James Bond, so they had to pay a pretty penny for him to be on there. Not only that, but think about the huge cast as well. Chris Evans. Yeah. Let's go on and on with that cast, but yeah, <laughs> this deal, my God, I mean, good for Ryan Johnson and Daniel Craig and the, that entire franchise, but is this a good deal for Netflix? See, my thing is, I'm so excited for this. I am over the moon about this news. I love Knives Out. I think that is the breakout hit of 2019, despite its huge cast and everything. I love that movie through and through. So the fact that we're getting two more is fantastic. And Ryan Johnson has complete creative control. Fantastic. He doesn't have to take shit from Netflix. So just everything surrounding that, 
I cannot wait for Knives Out 2 and Knives Out 3. Um, especially with reports saying that uh, there's going to be like a crossover with uh, Logan Lucky. And he's going to be playing his twin brother, Joe Bang Blanc. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Daniel Craig playing two characters in a Knives Out movie. Two different accents. Holy crap. <laughs> I can't wait. I'm so excited about this. But it's nearly half a billion dollars. And I love Knives Out, but is it worth nearly half a billion dollars? And they don't even own the rights to the franchise. This is just to make two movies. They're not, Netflix doesn't get the rights because of this. That's the most insane thing to me. I love Knives Out. Uh, There was something that it hit uh, on people that I think we had been missing. And I think it was, we were so, it it perfectly combined the whole action-y, fast-pacedness, you know, of a whodunit. Uh, But it kind of went back to the roots of the, it was a really good cross with that and the original idea of who Sherlock Holmes was. And uh, well played by casting Daniel Craig in that role as well. You know, um, I I think that it was a really good formula. I think it will do well, but I do think it is a lot because you have to remember the first one. I mean, that was it got so much, so many. It got so much recognition by the awards and uh, they really appreciate it. Critics appreciate it as well. And you have if they're betting on the same thing, because, you know, Netflix right now is hungry. They are hungry to, you know, we said this years ago when we first started the cinema show. And I love that we said it back on our original shows about how the streaming sites were going to take over the award shows. And we're going to start hearing all of these best, you know, picture nomina- nominees, you know, sponsored by these streaming sites. And, you know, five years down the road, guys, here we are. <laughs> And they are backing a lot of movies. And I think they're eventually, they really want to get that recognition of those awards. Yeah, I was very surprised with Knives Out when it first came out. I don't think I love it as much as both of you. I really enjoyed it. It's great. And I think the cast had a lot to do with that as well. I just don't see this being half a billion dollar franchise. And I think Netflix made a bad move on their end. I mean, again... Great for Ryan Johnson and the Knives Out series. I can't wait to see what they come out with. But I don't know. Like I, I just feel that Netflix is kind of doing a little too much to kind of stay afloat right now. And they're doing well. Don't get me wrong. Uh, I don't think they're like on their last legs or anything. But moves like this, I could, it smells a little desperate to me. Just a little. And, and I mean, are we going to get to watch a Knives Out movie in theaters? I don't think so. Aww. It's going to go sh- directly to streaming now. So again, it's we're slowly getting taken away from our theater experience with these great movies, which, I mean, I want to see a Gundam movie in theaters. I want to watch like I did the first Knives Out movie. I want to see its sequels in the theater, and we're getting robbed from it. Hopefully, this is my thinking, but I don't know. Uh HBO Max's deal uh, is paying off tremendously for them, and Mortal Kombat comes out next week. Um, so mm. there's still a whole year ahead with the whole duo dual release uh, release. So mm-hmm. maybe after this year, Netflix can take a uh, take a note from HBO Max and finally start putting their movies in theaters day and date on Netflix. That would be cool, but I'm not holding my breath. 
Um, Ryan Johnson is a huge uh, proponent of the uh, of the theater experience, so I'm sure he's fighting for that. I-, I would hope, but man, I didn't even think about that. Money talks, money talks. That's all I'll say about that. But good on Ryan Johnson. Questionable about Netflix, and I-, I guess it's good for us in a sense. I mean, we're getting a Knives Out two and three, so that's cool. Mm-hmm. Just I'm just hoping. I'll pray about it that we get it in theaters. Well, you know what? Uh, you never know what's going to come of it. It's the old Godfather scenario. You know, they hit gold with a sequel, but when they tried to make that number three, it was like, oh, but you know what? <laughs> they were lucky that they even hit gold with that sequel because how many franchises have we seen go downhill after the first one? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of curious now who they will cast because obviously I'm sure Detective Blanc, I think that's his name. Uh, Daniel Craig's character I wonder who he'll visit next you know I'm pretty sure it won't be the same family so I I wonder what kind of big cast we'll get in the next one that's why I referenced Sherlock Holmes because Mm -hmm. with him coming back as the mainstay that means this is going to center around I'm guessing his cases yeah so I'm guessing the second one that's why I was just like okay so he's going to be the central figure like a Sherlock Holmes and he's going to go on to his next case to me this is better than what we're getting with uh, Kenneth Branagh yeah, th- I think it's better than what we're getting from him. So, funny how we're getting competing whodunit trilogies. Yeah, it's cool to see that Agatha Christie is still, of course, why wouldn't she still be relevant to this day with them making those movies out of her work? And then also, uh, I'm sure Ryan Johnson is a huge fan of Agatha Christie, so it's great to see him still keep the genre alive and relevant too. But he- there's a movie that I wish that wouldn't be in theaters and would just go into the void that is streaming services the fast and furious franchise so yes so a trailer came out for oh let's just get into it universal pictures has released a new trailer for the ninth movie in the fast and furious franchise the preview shows the franchise's family members for a new adventure with vin diesel Michelle Rodriguez, Jordana Brewster, Tyrese Gibson, and Chris Ludacris Bridges. Luda! (laughs) Along are the movie universe's villains, Helen Mirren and Charlize Theron. The Fast and Furious 9 also recruits a fan-favorite character thought to be dead, Han, from the Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift, played by Sung Kang. And entering the race is John Cena as Vin Diesel's brother. The trailer also teases the franchise going into space. Directed by Justin Lin, F9 is scheduled to release on June 25th of this year. F9, more like F-U. Jeez Louise, (laughs) I got stupid-er. Because I'm stupid now, but I got even more (laughs) stupid watching this trailer. Jeez Louise. (sighs) <sighs> Guys, just let me tell you, if I was going to pick a group of people to go into the Space Force, this would be the group. John Cena, Vin Diesel. Hey, they're like family. It's cool that they have uh, self-driving cars in the Fast and Furious franchise. They're they're updating with the times. <sighs> Where do I begin? <laughs> Where do I? Look, this franchise, to sell this franchise in its early days, all you had to do was show... Vin Diesel's biceps, fancy cars, and women shaking their ass in slow-mo. Literally, that was the selling point 
of this franchise. I can't comprehend how this is a worldwide phenomenon of a franchise. Look, I just watched King Kong and Godzilla fight on the big screen and I loved it. So it's not me being a pompous a-hole and saying, you know, like, oh, this is in film. Like I can turn off my brain and just let go of stuff. But this what a great comparison, because it's true. We don't realize our own like I just geeked out over the next Indiana Jones movie. And I'm sitting here making fun of the Fast and the Furious. I don't know. Like, OK, you know, what? I think what my problem is, I think it's Vin Diesel. <laughs> I thought he died in the last one. I think he is creepy and cringy in died. real life. <laughs> and in this movie, they try to sell him as his badass and. It doesn't work for me. I see right through it. If they were really meta, Vin Diesel would be creepy and cringy like he is in real life. It's not in his contract. Yeah. <laughs> if he, even if he did die, he should have been dead already in this franchise because, like, physics and reality, it doesn't exist in this movie. He catches a freaking car while on top of another car, a moving car. I mean, are they trying to be like superheroes now? Is that, is that what we're doing now? I I saw something where they were flying. <laughs> Did anyone watch Hobbs and Shaw? No, I didn't watch that. Why would I? Okay, I saw look. that in theaters. Uh, what? <sighs> yeah, I saw it in theaters. Jackson is the reason why we're having F9. I saw yeah. it with a friend and we were fully aware of what we were getting into. We both understood what was going on. I mean, every once in a while, I think, well, maybe I can do heroin, but I'm like, no, that's probably not a good idea. <laughs> it's not even like cheesy anymore. <laughs> it's like nacho cheese that you get at a very sketchy gas station in a bad neighborhood. See, but here's the thing. Okay. I haven't seen when you're any, drunk. I haven't seen any Fast and Furious movie except for Hobbs and Shaw. And in that one, The Rock, Dwayne Johnson, however he's presenting himself, he's pulling a helicopter from a chain and... He's holding on to a helicopter while it's moving at full speed and he's holding on to a car at the same time and nothing he's just I it's And it baffling. rips him in half, right? It should have. No. It it should have To be honest, if there was anybody that could actually do that, it would be Dwayne Johnson. Not gonna lie. He can get away with that. But this movie, it's like a soap opera at this point, because most of the people on this poster have died in the movie, like in one of the movies, and they just bring them back. Like, I literally... Okay, so here's my history of Fast and the Furious, the franchise, the saga, if you will. I love the first three movies. I watched them all in theaters as a kid. I saw I saw Han die in Tokyo Drift. I saw him die. And it had nothing to do with the Jason Statham character until a post credit scene or whatever... In one of the random movies and like, oh, now it just so happened to be Jason Statham that killed Han. Then they treat Jason Statham as a as a buddy cop movie with The Rock. And it's like, oh, so you don't care about your characters in the franchise? Because at first he was a murderous bad douche. And now he's doing buddy cop movies with Dwayne Johnson. And then they bring back Han because of the backlash from the Internet criticizing the franchise for doing and then also the whole space thing. Like, first, it was a meme. It was like, oh, who's going to go to space first? Like, John Wick or the Fast and Furious movies? And the studio's like, oh, why not? Let's do it. Let's give the fans what they want. Let's put them in space. As long as they buy tickets to this god-awful franchise. 
See, I don't think they're going to go into space until um, (laughs) they're teasing space. The reason why they're teasing space in the trailer, which they could just be giving away a bunch of the movie, which they did for Hobbs and Shaw. I had seen so many movies in the theater before watching Hobbs and Shaw. I had just seen the Hobbs and Shaw trailers so much. By the time I actually saw the movie, I had already seen it all in the trailer. I knew everything that was going to happen. Except for, spoiler alert, skip like 15 seconds. Kevin Hart's in it as like one of those, oh, with the Liam Neeson character. What's that movie where he's on the plane? The Flight Marshal. Kevin Hart's a Flight Marshal. Wait, um, Kevin Hart's in Hobbs and Shaw? Yes. Isn't Ryan Reynolds in that movie too? Yes. Why not? Why not? Oh, wait, was that for something else? No, wait, yep, that was it. <laughs> no, that was a fever dream he had about a week ago, actually. It was not a real movie at all. <laughs> None of these are real movies at all. <laughs> you know what, though? Talking about respecting the characters, I actually had a similar experience. I felt betrayed whenever the Revenge of the Nerd series, when Ogre all of a sudden became a nerd himself. You know, I was like, do you even care about who these characters are? <laughs> well, Revenge of the Nerds, that first movie is questionable, too. <laughs> I don't know about the integrity of some of those characters in the first place. (laughs) Going back to space. Oh, yeah. So, Vin... Okay, hold on. Really quick. Vin Diesel makes his car swing like Tarzan. (sighs) Like, a bridge falls off and a vine sticks onto the tire and his car is literally swinging. Oh, my goodness. There's a part where John Cena is parachuting through a town and Vin Diesel out of nowhere tackles him in the, in the air into a building. Oh my, like <laughs> what? And we're, What's going we're seeing on? a lot in, in, in this trailer. I feel like I saw a good chunk of the movie getting back to what all that was. So they gave a lot away in this trailer. And I good. feel like if they're going to give something away like space in the trailer, I feel like they're not actually going to get to space. And I say this because I think they still got one movie left in them. They're going to end it off on F10, and they're actually going to go to space. Well, actually, Justin Lin confirmed that there's gonna, they're going to go all the way up into 11. So we still have two more films after this, and he even equated <sighs> F11 as the end game of the franchise, which I'm scratching my head because they put everyone in this movie. I mean, I don't know if you saw it. It was really quick, Not but Bow Wow is back. I'm Jason Statham. Bow Wow is in this movie. Okay. What? In F11, we're going to get the whole group back together. There's going to be a CGI Paul Walker. Oh, God. That's where the franchise really should have ended, where they said goodbye to Paul Walker. Like I was telling you earlier, Dylan, this, this franchise has jumped the shark so many times, and I feel like going to space is the ultimate jumping the shark for this franchise. So I, I honestly don't know where they can go from here. Well, I can tell you, Justin Lin and Michelle Rodriguez, when asked if they would consider crossing over with the jurassic world franchise they were actually up for it which do it just do it please oh, no vin diesel riding a t-rex just do it why not oh, i don't care God. anymore they don't care even the jurassic world they don't care about their original movies so why not just do it i can imagine vin diesel like oh dinosaurs are like family <laughs> they are family. We are their ancestors. 
or like we were talking about, if like they had aliens come down, Earth is the is the family. Do Earth it. Earth is a family, one big happy family. We fight sometimes, but we love each other at the end of the day, and we stand up for each other, because that's what family does. I could just see like the glass of water and like something like, oh my god, the water, and then Vin Diesel looking at it and seeing, good, I'm thirsty. <laughs> <laughs> has nothing to do with it. Give me a sip of that. I'm parched. Jackson, you can't use words like parched when mimicking Vin Diesel. That's too Root big of a word. Thirsty. thirsty. Yeah. My mouth is hungry. <sighs> this franchise needs to die. And it won't because it makes money. Money means nothing to me. Art is dead. So please, have Vin Diesel ride a freaking dinosaur. Why not? Can we turn our brains back on so we can talk about a yeah, let's pump the brakes. movie? Yeah, <laughs> yeah let's <laughs> put that gear in R and get the hell out of here. <laughs> let's talk about something a little bit more, um, a little bit more uplifting, right? A little bit more nuanced. <laughs> if you will. All right. Promising Young Woman. We haven't done a movie review in a while. Well, actually, we did. Last episode, what am I Last talking week. about? <laughs> Where have what I been? You on? It's been a crazy week, let me tell you. Did you forget because you did it with a woman? <laughs> Whoa. No, I was just highly intoxicated. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of those two Much things. Much like Make-A-Wit. Oh, yeah, that too. Nothing in Cassie's life is what it appears to be. She's smart, cunning, and lives a secret double life by night. Now, an unexpected encounter is about to give Cassie a change to right the wrongs from the past. The film stars Carrie Mulligan, Bo Burnham, and Alison Brie, along many others, which we'll touch on throughout the review. It's written and directed by Emerald Fennell, and it's nominated for five Academy Awards. That includes Best Film Editing, Best Original Screenplay, Best Actress, Best Director, and Best Picture. Now, before we start this, in all seriousness, for those listening, this movie does talk about and touch on very serious issues, and I don't want to make light of that. We like to have a good time on the show and make jokes, but uh, with that being said, if anyone uh, does not feel comfortable listening to these types of discussions, I recommend uh, you leave now and catch us on our next episode. But uh, yes, we will be talking about some serious issues that the film deals with, and Here's kind of your disclaimer warning on that. Uh, And we'll talk about spoilers later on. But yes, so Promising Young Woman. This was a surprise to me. I'm sure it's a surprise to all uh, watching the movie, especially the ending. But I just want to touch on, before we get into it, Carrie Mulligan. I thought she was amazing. I try to remember what I've seen her in before but i can't and i thought she was spectacular in this movie now keep in mind this movie came from margot robbie's production company actually and she's been making some moves her production company actually made birds of prey as well and what a movie this is and it's funny too because a variety reviewer of this film criticized this movie for not casting margot robbie the critic actually criticized Carrie Mulligan because, unquote, wasn't hot enough. And Variety actually had to come out. Yeah. Yeah, Lori. I know. Yeah. 
uh, Variety had to come out with a huge statement on that. And that in itself is just, it's the perfect example of what this movie was trying to say, among other, many other things. But I love Carrie Mulligan in this movie. I think she has a great chance at the Oscar. Uh, what a performance. Yeah, I was incredibly impressed with her. She, uh, she, you probably don't, re- she's like that person that you recognize, that actress that you recognize and you don't realize that you do because she's a, a lot more, uh, period pieces. She was the, in the remake of The Great Gatsby with Leonardo DiCaprio. She played Daisy. Oh, shoot. That's right. Yeah, which is that iconic role. And even, you know what, though? I do remember even at the time when they were casting for Daisy, she even got heat for that because, uh, I don't know if you know the original, but, you know, F. Scott Fitzgerald's uh, novel uh, with The Great Gatsby, they make Daisy out to be this heavenly, uh, you know, angelic, you know, character, you know, somebody that you would go through all that trouble. You know, it's like she was like Helen of Troy, essentially, you know, the face that la- launched a thousand ships. And so when they were casting it originally with Mia Farrow, I remember she was on the cover of People magazine. It was a really big deal. And even at the time, people people were doing the same thing to Mia Farrow, saying that she wasn't pretty enough to play Daisy in Gatsby. And I remember a lot of the same controversy came up in uh, when they did the remake. Uh, and then it's so it's very funny to say now that, you know, she was still getting heat for that, you know, as far as promising young woman, because she's a beautiful beautiful talented actress and uh i i thought she was just perfect in the role yeah how can you call her ugly Jeez, louise she's gorgeous what a huge f you to carrie mulligan that's so insulting no especially from a professional film critic exactly uh she was also in drive uh inside lewin uh lewin davis uh the one with oscar isaac and she was also in pride and prejudice oh my goodness you know but it does it does it goes uh you know it's in the eye of the beholder but it's this whole mentality and i love how this movie addresses the problem within society and this line of thinking this misogynistic way of thinking that has been implemented ingrained, ingrained in society talking about the cinematography i love how already going into it you know the issues this movie is going to talk about but the aesthetic it goes for everything's so colorful you know, a movie like this, you would going into it not knowing how it looks, you would think it would be real dour, muted colors, you know, trying to be serious. And this movie, and it is serious, even though I would, it's, it kind of runs a line of being a dark comedy. You're just surprised about how it's shot and how colorful this movie is, given the, you know, what it's trying to address. So I thought that was great. I, I loved it. I, I love the choices that Emerald Fennel chose to make in this movie, even though some say it's controversial and a mistake at the end but we'll get into that later i loved it the colors yeah the colors i'm glad you brought that up it's brilliant because it reminded me of like the brightness and the colors of it reminded me of things that are enticing you know that pop things that you're drawn to and it immediately made me think about you know a, a, a moth drawn to the flame mm. And you get burned. Mm -hmm. And I immediately thought of that because as a young person with girl, guy, you know, just as a young person going out into the world, you know, why do we go to the clubs? You know, you never hit a club that's, you know, dark and serious. No, no. I mean, we go to the the bright lights. We go to the colors. We go to everything that looks like it's supposed to be fun and happy and how so many of those looks can be deceiving. And they kind of draw you into some perilous situations. Yeah, everything looks like candy in this movie. Uh, I've been looking forward to this movie ever since I saw the trailer pre-COVID. 
I remember them playing the trailer every once in a while before a movie, and I, I was like, I cannot wait for this movie. When's it coming out? And all pandemic, I had to wait for it, and it was well worth the wait. Holy crap. It's perfectly balanced. The supporting cast behind it, too, is great. Uh, Bo Burnham oh, yeah. is Amazing. great. The entire movie, his performance is so great, and the character changes he kind of goes through. And it's a commentary on us men. Yeah, I, I loved him. I loved Alison Brie among the other. And they kind of play small roles, too, I would say, besides Bo Burnham and Carey Mulligan. But the cast is it's surrounded by talent all the way around. I, I didn't even mention Laverne Cox in this movie. I didn't mention uh, Molly Shannon, who makes a a glorified a cameo, I would say. Love Mo Molly Shannon. Plays a very different role in this. <laughs> and... Carrie Mulligan's, uh, her character, her parents, too. I thought they were great. Yes! Stifler's mom. <laughs> uh, oh, Alfred Molina. Uh, that was a surprise to me. I had no idea who was in this movie. Yeah. Yeah, Everyone else here. I knew about, but not Alfred Molina. And his character we'll get into. Such mm -hmm. a great role he played. Before we get into spoilers, because I'm eager to talk about it already. Uh, oh, wait. Before we get into spoilers, would you recommend it? Oh, yeah. Definitely. Huge. 100%. I, it's it's one of the best movies of the year. I'm so glad it was recommended to me by the Academy and the Golden Globes. Uh, <laughs> I yeah, one of my favorites. It's I would say it's a damn near masterpiece. Oh yeah, showing it agree. to all my kids. I and yeah. honestly, I feel like this movie should be shown in like high school. Yeah, coming from a parent, yes. Yes, like this is an important movie to show in health class, especially to young boys. Everybody needs to watch this movie. And e even women, too, because I, I love how that it, it's not just about, oh, men are bad and let's let's uh, punish them. No, it, it deals with a lot of different sides of this issue. I would recommend it, obviously. And spoilers. Here's your warning. I love the opening scene. Opening scene is amazing. I laughed in joy of the way it was shot because you see... Close-ups of men's asses and crotch shots of these like frat boys turned business guys in their polos tucked into their khakis dancing and obviously what they're trying to do is saying look this is how you shoot women and when the tables are turned it doesn't look so great does it and I loved it. Hey guys anybody feeling a little uncomfortable by these gratuitous crotch shots? <laughs> yes and I loved it for that it, it hooked me right there and I love how Carrie Mulligan is literally being crucified. She has her arms out while all the guys that pass by her are kind of looking at her and talking amongst each other. Loved it. I was like, Mwah, yes, that's that's what I want in my movies. And then the group of guys where they're kind of like, it's predator and prey. They're talking about it like, oh, hey, would you? Like, no, nah, she's drunk. It's like, so? And then you, you think you have the nice guy in the group played by Adam Brody. You think, oh, he's going to be the love interest. He's going to save her. And no, it takes a turn for the worse. And I love that too, because it's that sense of, oh, he's a good guy. I'm safe here. And just when you think it's safe, things take a turn. And just a great opening scene and seeing how her whole plan works. Seeing it all unfold. 
I think it really takes a hit on the whole idea of, oh, well, this type of guy does these types of things, but this type of guy is a good guy. Oh, bad guy, good guy. But at the end of the day, what this really focuses on is that there's no such thing. There's no good guy, bad guy. That's what, even in out there in reality, uh, the thing that kind of, when something like this happens or when an accusation gets brought up, so many people come forward like, oh, but he's such a nice, he's such a nice guy. He goes to college. He's this, he's that. We've seen so many instances of that. But the end of the day, it's not about being a good guy, bad guy. It's about right and wrong. And it's an, it's all about actions and it's about a right and a wrong action. Um, and in our society, we kind of, you know, we put people in these categories and uh, say, well, you know, but he's a good guy at the end of the day, or they're a good person at the end of the day. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's it's not, you know, and that's where we get into this whole argument of preconceived notions. And some people are persecuted more harshly than others. We have socioeconomic, you know, prejudice. We have gender prejudice. We have all sorts of prejudice. At the end of the day, it's because we believe and we buy in so much to these ideas of what people are. But at the end of the day, it's not about that. It's just about black and white actions y'all are saying it all for me y'all are stealing <laughs> words right <laughs> out of my mouth it's it's incredible it's it's everything it knows exactly what it is and it does it you could pick apart every single scene and there's a reason for everything for all the framing for all the character mo- motivations and it's spot on and it's such a well-crafted commentary and you know as you said about like the black and white actions it gets into the gray area towards the end. And I think that's what makes it genius. The fact that it says what it needs to say in the beginning and then at the end, it words cannot describe. Let me give a little bit of context to those that are still listening and don't care about spoilers and really don't know what this movie is about. So Carrie Mulligan, her character is named Cassie and she is a, I want to say she's already 30 years old at this point. They mention her age. And... Ever since she had dropped out from college, she lives this double life of pretending to be intoxicated at a bar in the hopes of some creepy predator comes and picks her up and takes her either to their place, her place, and try to make their advances on her. And that's where she kind of drops the act and confronts them and tries to scare them from not doing this act again. And this is all because... When she was in college, I think she was her and her best friend were going on their way to be doctors, and they were very good at it too. Uh, there was an incident that happened. I don't want to say the word, but a, a terrible thing happened to her friend, and it, it's not really they don't really say it out loud, but we could assume that because of that act, Cassie's best friend took her own life because of that act is what I got from the movie, and ever since then she she was on this vengeful road a good deed i would say but at a cost and the end i was so angry yeah i was so angry when i found out you know and and how she you know he was kind of that light for her like well this even she after everything she had seen and experienced she still you know invested in like oh well he's a good one you know Mm -hmm. and the fact that, you know, of course, after her friend shows her, you know, spoiler, after she sees the actual footage and she realizes that he was actually there the night of the incident. And you're just like, wow. And and I feel like that all went into her plan at the end. She counted on the fact that they were going to fail her. 
You know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) she counted on the fact that they were just going to be pieces, the pieces of crap she knew that they were. (laughs) Like Cassie, the audience is with her. And you're also hesitant when Bo Burnham first approaches her. And when she puts her guard down, you know that she doesn't put her guard down for anybody. So then you, like her, trust him. And so it just makes it more impactful when that drops, when you know that he was there during that incident it's just more heartbreaking and then but it also reaffirms like oh that's right the way she thinks is valid but how heartbreaking yeah how heartbreaking though it's just like uh but then you have the light the real light in it you know it's so funny because i was recently my daughter read the book for class called the tale of despero and it's a lot about light and dark uh Rascuro, the rat who lives in the dark and then you have the mice who are supposed to scurry and they they both have a longing for the light but despero is desperately like fighting you know on the good side trying to get the world to see him and accept him whereas Rascuro wants to steal it and take it away from everybody else because he's never had it but at the end of it at the core of it they both want the same thing so it, you know the light and the dark is very prevalent and i always go into it and it it kind of it comes a lot out a lot in characters you know and when i saw i really wanted bo to be you know and he was that light you know in the movie but in the end you know alfred molina's character ends up being the light and that's because in the beginning he's the dark you know he's defending everything that's happening in the end he's the one that brings everything to light and he gets a chance at redemption the seeds are planted and you don't you kind of don't realize it until they fruit and you see what happens when when everything plays out such a great movie so relevant yes i want to get into cassie's plan actually those roman numerals that we do see so i want to say her first victim well not victim but uh, on her path is allison Bree's character where again this part really surprised me it plays off as if she's just going to meet her friend. And it turns out uh, Alison Brie's character didn't believe Cassie's best friend. Uh, she even says, like, you slept around and we thought you were just crying wolf. So it kind of shows that gray area of like, no, it's not only just men are bad, let's punish them. It's also other contributing factors. You know, it's the friends that don't listen to you when you need them the most. And then also it plays into Cassie's character that is gray too. Because what she does to Alison Brie, uh, thinking that she got intoxicated and uh, slept with a person, which didn't really happen. Uh, she just wanted Alison Brie's character to think she did. But again, it's that moral compass <laughs> that we're kind of starting to question early on of Cassie. Like, okay, like I, I, I knew what you were trying to go for. I knew you wanted her to learn a lesson, you know, a little, a taste of her own medicine. But at what cost? It's a perfect escalation, much like a movie should be structured. It's perfect in it, the way the movie escalates with everything that she does and everything that happens as a result. Alfred Molina, uh, his character, where you think he fits the bill. He, he's a bad guy, and Cassie even has a guy outside waiting to beat him up, <laughs> and which you don't find out until the end. But I, I love how Alfred Molina's character was so affected by this and that guilt that he had for so many years, he carried it with him. And all he wanted was forgiveness. My dad would always talk about lives and about people. And he would always say, you spend the first half of your life raising hell. You spend the second half of your life trying to get into heaven. Mm. Wow. My dad would always say that because he says there does come a point in your life where you start to look at your past and you start reflecting on actions that you've done. 
you know, and he would always tell me that he would always say you spend the first half of your life raised in hell, you spend the second half of your life trying to get into heaven. And that's exactly what came to mind uh, with uh, Molina's character in this one, you know, kind of a man reflecting and realizing, you know, really looking at life, you know, probably gone through some stuff himself. And that's exactly where that took me. Going back to Alison Bree's character real quick before we move on from her, though, I do want to say it was a great representation of a lot that I see. Because you're right, when there's an assault done, uh, you know, and that's the thing. We keep, in this instant, yes, it was a woman. But in life, it's people, you know, men, women alike. Mm-hmm. I, you know, we know about people, you know, who, who are assaulted. But, you know, in, in life, you do have, you know, those preconceived notions and i i always go back to it i know a lot of people think it's a feminist idea but you know about women we do have a mentality from a very young age to think of each other as competitors you know there's you know three to four women for every one guy out there and on the earth you know when you're gonna land yourself a husband you know we're, we're taught you know oh you're prettier than that girl or oh that girl's prettier than you because she does her hair like this we're raised from a very early age to be very competitive with each other (laughs) and uh i always compare it to crabs in a bucket you know the reason that none of the crabs can get out of a bucket is because when when one starts to get to the top all the other ones drag them down and i've always kind of compared that uh women and women is the enemy mentality when it comes to you know a lot of the things that have been ingrained and embedded in a lot of us being raised and thank god things are changing thank goodness we have so many women out there who are who are and men women and men alike who are raising these children you know to to not see gender and to not look at those roles but the facts of life is that 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 has been perpetuated all these years and it is a very thing you you hear women I actually hear a lot of slut shaming from other women more than I do from men (laughs) because I think that there's this whole mentality of oh well yeah she was one of those types of girls that's why or she goes out drinking or she put herself in that situation and it comes to this shaming thing of like well that's why it happened to her it can't happen to me so I loved how they did play that point with Allison Bree's character about how it's not something that happens to somebody because of something it can happen to anybody another person that was in Cassie's path was the dean I believe I think it was the <gasps> dean yes. of the college which was probably one of my favorite scenes in the movie she was the person they reported it to and she didn't and she didn't remember it because she even says do you know how many times I get these reports in a week? And that was her excuse. You know, nobody truly understands until it happens to you or one of your exactly. own. Exactly. That's the whole point of that scene. And the thing that I come back to is that you shouldn't need to have to think of it like that. You should just all automatically empathize with the person that was assaulted. But they don't see it that way. They think of it as not their problem. Like the dean says, do you know how many I get of these a week? And they have to either be slapped in the face by it or just be told enough times like, hey, this is someone's daughter, wife, cousin. You know, this is she is important to someone. Just because Mm -hmm. she's not important to you doesn't mean she does not matter. And every little and every person, every Roman numeral that she crosses off, it confronts and it talks about a different side of the culture around the way that we treat it as a society and it does it so well and going back to what you were saying glory the misogyny that's fed to these girls that's from such a young age becomes internalized misogyny and then in turn becomes microaggressions and it just becomes part of daily life and routine we just never question it because that's just the way things have been 
And like you said, we're finally having these conversations that need to be had. I mean, I'm so bad about it myself when it comes to these ingrained ideologies, because I sit there all the time and something will come up, you know, especially with the recent passing of my father. I thought I was very independent. And then my father passed away. And whether it comes to changing a tire or fixing something around the house or doing the yard, my first gut instinct is I need I I don't say it I think it in my head but I'm like oh my gosh I need a man Uh, just because that's just so ingrained in me and then just kind of like having to stop myself and say okay what what am I going to show my daughters you know and so I pick up that hammer I watch the YouTube tutorial I change the tire because I'm like you know it has to stop somewhere the cycle has to stop somewhere with this and, and like with guys like, oh, you're drinking a fruity drink, you, you girl or you pansy. You're drinking a cocktail instead of a beer. Yeah, it's, it's just another one of those things. Beer's icky. <laughs> Touching again on the whole university, the fact that she was the dean reaction. It took me back to a story that I heard. I was actually in a logic class at the university. It was towards the tail end, you know, of my scholastic career. But I'll never forget a girl was uh, she had a women's club and she was really looking for new members to join. And the biggest thing that they were working on that year was there was a girl and this must have been what, two years ago, because the past year we've been, you know, pandemic mode. But this is so this was about two years ago and there was a girl who was sexually assaulted on campus and uh, it took the police department and the local university police department and then after they reached out to the local hospital it took over 24 hours for them to get her to a place where they could test her with a rape kit because they don't keep any the 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 campus police department didn't keep any on campus and they actually weren't prepared for something like that at our local hospital either Uh, And they ended up having to wait till they could transport her to Corpus. At that point, they had advised her that a lot of the DNA was not going to be uh, salvageable anymore and that only a certain percentage of it was even going to hold up in court because of the longevity of how long she had to wait. And it was just heartbreaking because, of course, you know, you're, you can't hold, you know, you can't not go to the bathroom for 24 hours. So this entire time they had her detained, she was going to the bathroom, all those other things. And they ended up dro- this case. I'm not sure what happened to it, but I, I know it didn't come to fruition uh, as far as convicting the people involved because of the time it took to get this girl to a place where she could get a r- proper rape kit. And that's just uh, another instance of the system failing. It's the victims. I I guess we can just talk about the ending. Uh, Once Bo Burnham's character mentions that the person who assaulted her best friend is back in town and is actually planning on getting married. He is living his life. He's getting married. He's a rich doctor. He's, He's great. Yeah, and Cassie sees red, and that's when she goes on her rampage and finally it's time to finally confront the abuser and yeah so he's having a bachelor party and she gets all dressed up i guess she dresses as a nurse stripper (laughs) uh by the way she's doing all this along the uh an instrumental cover of toxic by britney spears which they played a lot in the trailers It, it never got old i loved it and She finally confronts him, and this is like spoiler of the spoilers. So her big plan, which I'm still kind of confused about, and maybe Lori can clarify it for me, but she roofies all the dude bros and 
handcuffs the soon-to-be husband into the bed and she pl- and she does her whole monologue finally gets to confront the man that she's despised this whole time and I, there's a quote she says and I loved it so much where her best friend had to listen and hear the man's name for most of her latter years of her life and she wanted to return that favor Nina was extraordinary, so smart, weirdly smart. She was so completely herself. Even when she was four years old, she was fully formed from day one. Same face, same walk, and funny. Like a grown-up is funny, kind of shrewd. I was just in awe of her. I couldn't believe she wanted to be my friend. She didn't give, me, she didn't give a fuck what anyone thought apart from me, because she was just Nina, and then she wasn't. Suddenly, she was something else. She was yours. And it wasn't her name she heard when she was walking around. It was yours. Your name all around her, all over her, all the time. And it just squeezed her out. So when I heard your name again, your filthy fucking name, I wondered, when was the last time anyone had said hers? Or thought it even, apart from me. And it made me so sad because Al holds up scalpel. You should be the one with her name all over you. Brilliant. I love that. It was great. And then the act that ensues... So, again, this is the spoiler of the entire movie, like the biggest spoiler in the act of trying to carve her name, her best friend's name into the abuser. The abuser somehow breaks out of the handcuffs. And then for two whole minutes, the abuser smothers our hero, Cassie, with a pillow and the camera stays on it for two whole minutes um yeah it was hard to watch it was one of the biggest surprises i haven't felt like this watching a movie since parasite and i'm just glad that it was a woman who decided on that choice Uh, i think i would have felt a lot more differently about that choice if it was a male director or a male writer behind this movie it was a powerful moment It, it there's a lot of different reactions and when a movie can do that, that can make a bunch of people have such wildly different reactions to the same event, and everyone has a different thing coming away from it, I, that's great. I, I think you did your job, and this movie did that excellently. I don't like the scene, uh, given what, what happens in it, but I, I know what you're trying to say, Dylan, yeah. But, you know, let's think about in the last year, you know, I think we've been subjected to a lot visually, not only through movies, but even through life of seeing, you know, you know, how quickly a life could be taken away. I immediately, you know, made the connection to George Floyd uh, and how it went viral and us watching him literally die on national TV. And I think what it does, I think what that scene in the movie did for me is the same thing that the George Floyd incident did for me whenever it's up in your face and you see it happening, you know, and I think that's the carnal, you know, was, of course, it didn't hit resonate as hard as what it's real life, but the movie did hit home the point of just how fragile life is. And just, you know, I love how they, they had it for that whole two minutes. I loved how we went through it with her. And it just really made it resonate and hit home. And I think if there was ever a time for something like that, I think it was now. I agree with you. I think it would have completely taken a different turn if it wasn't a female director, which is sad because I think that it was the right directing choice. 
It, it would just come off a completely different way. It would come off a completely different way. And I think of anything, this movie's trying to show us that it's not about the people or the gender. It's about the action. So uh, I think it's heartbreaking that even now we're having the conversation of, oh, but if it was a male director, we might have a different opinion. <laughs> and and well, I, I, I think it would have been more exploitive of for a man yeah. to do that. Who comes to mind? Tarantino. I was gonna say Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> mm-hmm. Immediately. And I, I'm just ha- so happy that it came from a female's. It, it was a female's call to show that on screen. Absolutely. It, it's baked into the script that Cassie dies, but a direct, a different director would have gone a different. I don't think uh, another director would yeah. have held on the shot for two unbroken minutes. It's more impactful too, because I mean, what's the movie that we really wanted at the end? We wanted her to carve the name all over the guy's body. You wanted her to walk out of that cabin and have the cabin explode behind her and her live her life. She could maybe even build Bo Burnham. She forgives him and they get married happily ever after. And I'm so glad they didn't go that route. Or I'm kind of glad that things didn't work out the way that we thought it would. What I kind of had a criticism for is not the act itself. I, I do appreciate it and I love the choice. I, I kind of am mixed about what comes afterwards. <laughs> I think for me, that's where it kind of gets shaky. And that's where when I said it's a near perfect masterpiece of a movie, that very small part of the movie is where it kind of kind of breaks a little bit for me. I, I think it comes from the tonal shift that comes from it, specifically the the new girl actor guy that comes in the best friend the best man of the of the groom and the way he acts is seems like it's from a different completely different movie i think it's a little it's played off a little goofy for me what what i thought was like um kind of like one of those uh american pie movies yeah like oh the stripper's dead you know kind of thing and I, i thought that was a little i don't know maybe that's what was intended from emerald fennel i think it was yeah i just thought it didn't for me, it didn't fit. I kind of felt like she didn't have the plan. She didn't know she was going to die going into it. And if she did, the things that came out afterwards, or like her plan itself, like what if the man didn't break off from the handcuffs and smothered her? You know, what if she did walk out of that cabin alive? Then would the plan have backfired on her? I don't think so. Uh, I think that she had everything. See, I liked it. I liked the ending. I feel like she had everything planned. I, I, I don't think she, I think she hoped she wasn't going to die, but I think she knew it was a high potential that she might. So I think she just covered her bases. And I think that in hindsight, I mean, my goodness, if there's one thing this girl can do is like, she, she has a plan for everything. She would have canceled those precinct messages. She would have been there to intercept the package that Alfred Molina got. Uh, and it would have just all gone away. Now, my takeaway, uh, my problem with the ending is that the movie goes to great lengths to uh, chastise the the power and the establishment that allowed this and enabled this to happen. And at the end of the movie, who comes and saves the day but the power and the establishment? I think there it was a miscalculation uh, to leave what happened in the hands of the cops and the justice system, the same justice system that let this guy get away before. 
And now he has even more influence. He's not just a student. He's a rich doctor and he's about to be married. But that's why she had the things in there, like the half of the locket placed on the ashes. Thing about it is, is that she was meticulous. They, right. they can't deny this stuff. That's why she did that. There, he's not. So what she did, she didn't give the power to the establishment. She has become a realist and she understands that the power does lie in those hands. So she manipulated it and used it for her. There you go. There it is. That's what she did. Cassie, the character herself, is so complex. And there's times where I am rooting for her. And then there's times where I'm like, well, did you have to go that far? And it's brilliant that the movie is making you think like that. I'll say it again. We are in the uh, the era of the anti-hero. Mm-hmm. Everyone's got a dark side. Exactly. She's an extremely flawed character. But uh, I think that's uh, we just e- even root for her more because she is. Yeah, that, that adds to it. It's part of what makes her her. And it it gets the job done at the end of the day. No matter how far you think she went, she got it done. I think the highlight move, uh, highlight from the movie for me was seeing McLovin creep the fuck out. <laughs> I love, okay. I think that the male cast of the men that she, you know, ends up teaching this lesson to like at the very beginning, you know, when she's first starting off the movie, they deserve so much recognition. I thought that they were amazing. And I don't think enough credit is being given to these men. These are the unsung heroes of the movie. I'm I'm serious because especially some of these men with they have their nice guy, goofy personas that are already out there in the world. And to put themselves in this movie, I'm just they're like, good on like that took some cojones. <laughs> but also talk about a perfect opportunity to break out of your stereotype. And mm-hmm. so I'm sure the ones who did do it saw the opportunity and like, okay, typecast what i'm gonna go do promising young woman and most of these abusers are comedians like you said like make a bo burnham the guy from new girl and uh, oh i i think that's uh intentional because um they're all comedians because the guys in life they're always allowed to have a great fun time be goofy but the women are always the one having to be put in the box and having to be serious and having to not emote because then you're being emotional and then you're being dramatic well, the guys can just be as goofy and silly as they want. Stop gaslighting women, society. We live in a society. <laughs> what would y'all rate it? Solid, at least nine. I- I've got to give it at least a nine. I'm going to give it the big 10 10 10 I loved it. I loved the ending. I didn't have a problem with it. And I, I loved how she put all of the evidence right in there. You know, how would she have known that they were going to burn her to a crisp? You know, like she put that in there just in case. I mean, they really were getting rid of her completely. And then boom, half of the locket right there on top. I give it a 10. I'll meet you guys halfway. 9.5. Again, I, I loved the entire movie, I just feel like tonally, after she had been smothered, uh, I think uh, tonally and a little bit of her plan just didn't it didn't sit right with me. I'm not going to say that. Uh, it just, um, I don't know. I, I think it could have been a little bit more fine-tuned. And that's completely, f- I, I think that's fair. But I loved it. Yeah. Hope nothing but the best for it come Oscar Woo-hoo! season. It's the dark horse. Yeah, I def- it really is. It, don't count this movie out. But most importantly... For those listening, what did you all think of Promising Young Woman? Men, did you take notes? Because I did. Men, we're not perfect, and we need to come to terms with that and own up. 
there's three movies I'm going to show my son. Fatal Attraction, The Jody Area Story, and Promising Young Woman. But yeah, let us know what you all think of the movie at our social medias. All of them. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Cinema Show Live. Tweet us, comment, like our post, share us. Or maybe you just want a shout out. Either way, you're all part of the panel as much as we are. Jackson, where can we find you? You can find me on Twitter at Jackson underscore DML. Lori, where can we find you? You can find me on Twitter. I'm at lovely Lori, uh, Lori Guajardo, if you need to look it up. And uh, also putting out a new project out there. Stay tuned for Pup. And you can find me pretending to be drunk at a bar <laughs> trying to pick up these these women because I know you're out there. No, I'm kidding. I, I knew you. I knew you were joking. I was joking too, Dylan. I was joking too <laughs> when, I, when I did that. I thought we'd discuss that. Uh, I'm coming for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> you could follow me on Twitter at DylanMM5. And uh, that's going to do it for us here. Remember, all films are subjective and it's all about perspective. Wait, wait a minute. Wait a darn minute. Uh-oh. We forgot about Dario. Son of a bitch. Dario. Dario's right here. He is literally like two feet. We're in the same room. Mm-hmm. He's right here. I see ya. He watched Promising Young Woman five times for this episode. He's been oh, patiently Dario. waiting to get a word in, and we just kind of steamrolled that whole conversation. Uh, I, I feel bad now. I feel really Well, bad. you know what? We'll get him in next time. Yeah, my laptop's right. dying. I have to go. Yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah, sorry. Okay. Sorry, Dario. Next time. We'll get you. Um, you can follow him on Twitter at Dorito is a name. Great music great composer love him so hey reach out to him if you need some music because he does great and this is the cinema show remember all films are subjective and it's all about perspective have a great day and a better tomorrow